So we're continuing with Zechariah. Last week we did, the last two weeks we've done the overview. Talked a little bit about literary style last week and uh, talked about the interpretive schematic. Um, recognizing that in many of Zechariah's uh, oracles, they refer to the the context or the situation he was facing in his own day as the people had returned from exile and had begun work on the temple and then allowed that to wane and now were being encouraged to come back to that. We'll talk more about his own immediate context um, a little bit as we go along as well, but also it refers to the beginning of uh, the Messianic Age, the coming of the Messiah, or what we might just say, Jesus's first coming, um, and the beginning of the church age, which we live in. And it also, though, can sometimes refer to a much further future fulfillment right at the end of the age when God will uh, restore the creation, bring his plan to fruition, and, uh, and so there's a lot of interplay between those sort of three time frames uh, within the book. Last week, we did talk about, we began talking about these early visions, these sleep time visions, or what seem to be dreams that uh, Zechariah has, and then which, which uh, formed the initial part of his oracle. We talked about the first uh, three. So... There was the, the, four, uh, the four horsemen or the four riders on horses. And then there were the horns and the craftsmen. And uh, you may recall there was also discussion of uh, a measuring rod where the, uh, the temple is measured and the city, I think the city is measured. The, measured. the city is measured and, there, and the city has no walls, which speaks to, of course, uh, the ability for uh, the many people to be even larger than uh, the city itself in terms of the, the number of people and the, the landmass they need, but also God will be their protection. So uh, there you have a, the beginning indication of uh, the final state where God will dwell among humans and he will be their protection. Of course, hearkening back to uh, how God protected the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings as they came out of slavery in Egypt. So again, how the Exodus functions as a picture of salvation. And so we begin with vision number four, where, um, uh, where we've come to sort of the middle of these visions. And in visions four and five, uh, there's going to be discussion of these two leaders that we've mentioned before, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, who is the Jewish governor, uh, sort of like the political leader over the people who had returned from exile. And what we're suggesting is that um, these two uh, persons, the religious leader and the political leader, they function as symbols of who the Messiah is. And we'll see this again later, but again, there's a bit of a messianic picture. It's not always the Messiah, as we'll see here with Joshua, uh, because he's, he appears um, with uh, sin, uh, unclean. But, it, uh, but again, we could say that the Messiah takes on sin and uh, bears our sin for us. So, um, do you want to start? Do you want me to? Okay, so in, in vision four then, uh, the angel shows Zechariah, Joshua the high priest, and he's standing before uh, the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord oftentimes is a reference to God in a, in a physical form, or some people think the angel of the Lord is Christ uh, in the Old Testament. But nevertheless, he appears before this angel of the Lord, and Satan is uh, standing, or the accuser is standing on his right, uh, most thought to be Satan. And he's uh, accusing Joshua, and God himself rebukes Satan and reminds him of his sovereign choice of Jerusalem. So presumably a reference to the covenant. Um, and he talks about being plucked from the fire um, 
Joshua appears in robes that are literally, the Bible says, covered in feces. So it's pretty graphic description of, uh, of sin or uncleanness, right? It's like the height of uncleanness. He's covered in feces. And uh, these dirty clothes, God removes them. They're removed from him. And he's given clean festal clothing, including a turban by the angel of the Lord, right? So if the angel of the Lord is God um, or Christ, he's giving him the turban to wear. And he tells him that God says, the angel says, I will remove your iniquity. Um, and, And of course, this cleansing of the high priest also pictures a cleansing of the land in uh, in 3 verse 9, where uh, God says he's going to cleanse the land. And so God makes an offer to Joshua. He says, if you will follow my ways and uh, and serve me, right, fulfill all the functions of the Levitical priesthood, you can govern my house, you can lead in my courts. And and here's the interesting thing. He says, I will grant you, grant access to among those standing here. Um, and we're not, we're not exactly clear who he's referring to right then, but the implication uh, or what it pictures is direct access to God. Um, and this is, Right, direct access, unmediated access beyond the once a year that the Levitical priesthood would have. So now think for just a moment about uh, the way Hebrews describes Jesus's priesthood. Jesus's priesthood is far and above superior to the priesthood of the Levitical priesthood. It's a priesthood where he has direct access to God, unmediated access, uh, and he grants that to us. We have that through him. In fact, the, the Bible says we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so we have this pictured here. And in 3.8, God says that uh, that that uh, Joshua is a symbol. You're a symbol. And here he says, I will bring in my branch. Is that on the next one? No. So he says, I will bring in my branch. There's that language of the Messiah. Um, And then he uses the language of servant. And he says, I'll set before you a stone with seven eyes. Um, We're not sure what that stone is. It might be building material. Um, It might also be the Messiah himself, or it might uh, be a reference to the gemstones that are in the priest's breastplate. Um, but the seven eyes, of course, is depicted, uh, or the seven spirits of God, as depicted in Revelation 5, 6, you see the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. And of course, then it, it, the, the, uh, the vision here shifts to a future where it says God will remove the iniquity of the land in one day and here again, uh, covenant language, all will invite their neighbors to sit under their own fig tree. This, uh, this sitting under a fig tree is thought to be uh, a, a common expression in the ancient Near East. We see it in Micah 4.4. It says you'll sit under your own fig tree. And in Micah 4.4, you don't have to look it up right now, but what it speaks of is unwa- it speaks of an unwavering commitment to the Lord in Israel. So here what we see again is a restoration uh, of Israel and a turning back to the Lord where the people serve him unwaveringly. I was just going to add to that um, as we talk about Joshua being, um, you know, a, a messianic representative, um, he's also a, a representative of um, of the people and and of their experience. And so it's like John said, pretty graphic for the high priest to be sitting there with you know excrement all over his robes. Um, but there, it's not like he's extra sinful. But the people being in exile among Gentiles have been defiled, and as they come back, it's like God is cleansing the people from top to bottom. So from the heart, which is the worship of God, God is cleansing the priest to, you know, begin helping to cleanse the people. And it's not even just the priest that cleanses the people. He's, he's um, uh, teaching them the proper worship of God. He himself needs to be cleansed before the Lord to begin with. And then um, as we'll see throughout the next few chapters that God by his spirit 
is step-by-step cleansing everything about the the um, Israelites who have returned now and who want to set up a proper worship of God in the land. So the priest is cleansed, the land is going to be cleansed, um, and uh, uh, in a future vision, the people's wickedness is cleansed from the land. And it's the work of God. I guess that this is a primary point, and we'll see this in the next vision as well, that it's the work of God's spirit. Do you want me to talk about that? So then moving forward in, oh, oh, go ahead. So in the next vision, this is kind of interesting. Um, Zerubbabel, he appears to have passed out and needs to be revived. We see this uh, many times in the Old Testament where the prophet, he gets his vision and it's, what did I say? Zerubbabel. Zechariah, sorry, Zechariah. Uh, as he appears in verse one, he appears to have passed out and needs to be revived. And we see this in, in like Ezekiel, he, this happens to him. I, I actually think Ezekiel may have actually died and been revived by God, but um, this often, this, this oftentimes happens. And so he's, he's overwhelmed. And uh, so anyway, then, then he has this, this vision of a golden lampstand with seven lights and two olive trees um, that seem to be filling the lampstand with perpetual oil. Um, Go ahead. And so um, through this vision, I think we're seeing um, an affirmation of Zerubbabel as, um, as an approved leader, as one who is a sanctioned leader, who will do God's work by God's power through God's spirit. And um, uh, if you look in verse six, uh, the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, like not by your strength or by your might, because there's a smaller group of people and they're daunted by this, this task now of building the, the temple. They don't have a lot of strength and might, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts, what are you great mountain? Before it's rubable, you will become a plain. So what is this great mountain? You know, it's, I mean, there are, there are various interpretations. Um, I would just say possibly in the immediate context that it refers to this impossible, nearly impossible situation of rebuilding. You know, it's been stalled now for almost 20 years. And so this great mountain will be, will be removed by God's power. And just as Zerubbabel, uh, you know, it said his hands laid the foundation and his hands will complete it. He'll put the capstone on it. And so possibly this capstone that's discussed in um, verse seven, maybe it relates to the stone in the previous um, verse that is set. You know, John said it could be like building material, right? The, the top of, of the temple, the finishing um, part of the temple, because he says um, the capstone will come uh, with shouts of grace, grace to it that might reflect like a future ceremony of dedication of the finished, uh, of the finished temple. And of course, in the New Testament, the the gospel and Jesus both are sometimes identified with building materials like cornerstones and the like. So it, it wouldn't be uncommon for there to be, again, double multiple meanings of these these images. Right. There's sort of the literal right building material because they're building a temple. And then there's a symbolic meaning that can be uh, that could refer to something in the immediate context, like you need my spirit with you, and uh, you're going to be a rock and a strong, uh, you know, a a strong stone holding it together, holding the building together, um, and also still refer to the Messiah, just like these two olive trees. So Zechariah sees these olive trees, and he says, what do these mean? And and the angel, it's, I find it kind of, it's kind of humorous, because the angel's like, you don't know what this means? Like, you're, it should be obvious. And Zechariah's sort of like, no, you know, tell me. And then he tells him something that's still kind of cryptic without a, a full explanation. You know, these are, uh, you know, these are the, the, the anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the earth. Okay, <laughs> who's that? And we're not told. Interestingly, the same imagery appears in the book of Revelation regarding the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. A lot of discussion. Uh, if you've ever uh, sat through a sermon series or watched a a video series or studied the the book of Revelation, these two witnesses, lots of various interpretations of it. Some people think it's uh, the, the Bible and the church. Some people think it's certain sacraments. Some people think it's Elijah and Moses. Some people think it's a revived, uh, you know, two super apostles or preachers or evangelists uh, preaching. Um, 
here in Zechariah's day, it seems like they're images again of Zerubbabel and Joshua, right? Who are the leaders of the Israelis facing, as Stefan said, this very difficult task and they need encouragement. And the encouragement is God is with them. God is empowering them and God will guide the people through this task for his glory, because that's what they're supposed to be doing, building the temple for his glory, for the worship. But, but again, right, this has sort of a forward, a forward picture because in the book of Revelation, the John, the, the elder who writes this and who saw these visions, writes of this very same imagery about these two witnesses who appear just before the end in 11, uh, 15. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to read it real quick if I can. Um, should I should have marked it. I in 11.15, he says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven. And then here's what he says. This is right after the description of the two witnesses. He says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And then the 24 elders sit on the thrones before God, fell on their faces, and worship God. And they go on to say, give thanksgiving to God. So, again, there's a, this imagery of... Uh, application to the immediate context and a future uh, a future application pointing to the end when God will bring all of history to its final consummation uh, revealing his plan and his purposes and that verse John just read is in the hallelujah chorus for those of you who uh, contact us with questions about what is or isn't in you know certain um, musical works. <laughs> And that would be a que answer for a, a question for Stefana yeah. more often than me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just also want to highlight I'm just sorry. quickly the the um, portion of verse ten that says, "Who scorns the day of small things? The day of small things, the day of small beginnings." Um, and it just continues to make the point that by God's power, this small beginning or this small effort by a weak group will succeed only by God's power. Um, so. I remember when my parents were doing church planting, every time that we started a new church, you know, it's a very small group and, you know, can get very discouraging when it's just, you know, the handful of folks um, each week for a while. It's a small beginning, but it's not in our own strength that we build the Lord's work. The Lord does his own work, but we participate. All right, his sixth vision is the giant flying scroll. Uh, it seems to have some of the Torah, some of the, the law, God's words written on it, laws specifically against stealing and against lying uh, or swearing falsely. And, of course, what do those mean? They could, uh, they could be symbolic of outer and inner sins, right, sins that are action-oriented and sins that have more to do with the inner life. Um, they could be summarizing uh, the whole of the Ten Commandments as sins against God and sins against your neighbor, um, or, uh, or something like that. Uh, at any rate, the scroll is seen as a curse or a judgment of God upon those who violate, um, and probably by means of an invading army again, right? He calls himself in verse 4, the Lord of armies here. Um, so what I think is interesting is that the symbolism uh, of the scroll as judgment uh, is most interesting because it's, it is actually God's word um, that is the, the judgment, right? God's word judges us itself. Um, and for us as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. God's word uh, reveals uh, our sin to us and then refines us uh, through the work of the Spirit, recalling God's word to our minds and convicting us of our sins so that we can repent and turn. More? Do you have anything? I will at the end. Of, of vision six. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Oh, so so the next one is okay. Sorry. So the next one is the woman in. Oh, that's what I was. Did asking. you say? Oh yes. All right, go ahead. Okay. The woman in the basket, <laughs> being flown away, who represents wickedness, um, representing uh, idolatry and all that goes with it, as they experienced it in Babylon, which um, is uh, like a shinar is another word for 
Babylon. Um, so uh, it's connected to um, the place where the Tower of Babel was raised, uh, Genesis 11.3, the land of Shinar. Uh, also in Daniel 1, Babylon is called the land of Shinar, where Daniel and his friends were, uh, were taken, and all the treasures of the temple were taken. So, um, so we see that wickedness is removed from them, as, uh, as the text says. So I think it's interesting in the, in the previous vision that falsehood and dishonesty is removed from the people or is purged from the people. And then in this vision, it represents false worship that's being purged from the people. Some, uh, yeah, and there's some debate about the, the woman. Some think it, it actually refers to not a woman, but an idol actually in the basket. Uh, it could be an idol. Um, so it might be a reference to idolatry. I think it's probably uh, more broad, referring to um, like a godless world order or worldly way of seeing things. If you uh, compare this with Revelation 17 and 18, you have a woman there with uh, Babylon the Great written on her forehead. And in uh, 18, the judgment of God comes down on, uh, on Babylon and uh, you have the the angels uh, calling out, "Fallen is Babylon the Great," and there's rejoicing in heaven, which uh, is usually taken to be some kind of uh, worldly order of some kind, whether it's a political entity like uh, like a revived Roman Empire or uh, or even uh, Israel, uh, a godless Israel, or whether it's um, more broadly uh, like, uh, humanism, you know, some kind of philosophy like that. It could be either or. Right. In the eighth vision, we have four chariots. Um, I would say, I wanted to say this the other week. I'm not sure if I said this, but I think we need to be, uh, careful about trying to look for one-to-one -one correspondence between these visions and, uh, those in the book of Revelation. So here we have horses of various colors. You have four horsemen in the book of Revelation. But again, uh, they don't seem quite the same. These horsemen are patrolling the earth. Um, interestingly, uh, none go to the east. Um, and in 6-8, uh, we're told that those who went north, so presumably to Babylon or where Babylon is, um, they satisfy God's wrath. So it seems like they're purging in some way. So they may be, uh, again, executing judgment of God on uh, godless humanity. Anything else? Okay. The other part of six uh, has an interesting discussion of um, Zechariah taking up an offering from the returning exiles and making a crown and placing it on Joshua's head. So here, Joshua, who's the high priest, is called Branch, with you know, maybe with capital B, we should say. Um, so he, he's representative of the Messiah. And he seems to be, in this case, here, in, uh, to be representative of both himself, the, the priest, uh, right, Joshua as the high priest, but also Zerubbabel. Um, we're told he will complete the temple of the Lord in 612. But back in 4, 9, and 10, we're told Zerubbabel will complete uh, the building of the temple of the Lord. Um, here, Joshua is described as being clothed in splendor and sitting on a throne and ruling. Uh, normally, the high priest would not be described this way. But here's why I say he looks... He looks more like an image of the Messiah here because now he's, uh, he appears as something of a priest and a king. He's giving peaceful, peaceful counsel, literally. And so in uh, 6.15 then, this description of, of uh, Joshua wearing this crown and functioning in this sort of priestly and kingly role, it closes with the people coming from far away to build the Lord's temple and uh, they will do so and they will receive blessings if they're obedient. So the hinge here is the obedience of God's people. Uh, and of course that parallels Deuteronomy 28, right before they enter the promised land with the blessings and the curses. If you will do these things, you will be blessed. You want to say more? Okay. 
So in Zechariah 7, we have um, a request for clarification on fasting from some folks from Bethel. And if you remember, Bethel was a worship center of um, the northern kingdom of Israel. And um, uh, so there, there were some Israelites uh, there at Bethel, um, priests that were left so that they could tell the people of the land how not to make the God of the land mad at them, you know, and send lions to kill them. Um, as I mentioned a few weeks back. So the Bethelites come in and request a clarification on fasting uh, to Zechariah. And Zechariah seems to indicate by his answer that it wasn't, it wasn't true fasting. And so we might compare that with Isaiah 58, who um, basically says on behalf of the Lord, you know, when you fast, you do your own stuff, you do your own interests, you know, kind of you fast for yourself. And what's important to the Lord is the heart and true justice. And he says to execute justice, it's a word we've seen before, mishpat, and faithful love, it's the hesed, and compassion, which is raham, that we've seen before in Hosea. And so he indicates that this is where their ancestors went wrong. This is where they failed. And so they were punished via exile. And um, I wonder that, um, you know, since he's talking to those from Bethel and he says, you know, your ancestors, um, is he referring to where Israel went wrong, like the northern kingdom, referring to their exile? And so gradually as we're going through the book of Zechariah, we're kind of seeing that it's not just about Judah who has returned here from exile, but God's plan in the future also embraces maybe Israel and um, the Northern Kingdom, so that all of God's people could be at some point um, reunited. That's it. All right. Here's an interesting slide. <laughs> um, Zechariah 8, the, the primary focus is on rest, return and restoration. So uh, God says, I'm jealous for Zion. I love Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And uh, he goes on to describe then a time of security and safety and blessing where the old and the young can uh, be in the streets without fear. And he says, this isn't too difficult for the Lord. It might seem difficult, but it's not too difficult for the Lord. And of course, his point here is, again, encouragement to, uh, to these leaders to not give up. Um, and in verses uh, 7 and 8, there was a promise of restoration of the scattered people to Jerusalem. And I put this little uh, thing up here about the state of Israel just because I think many times... Um, I hear sometimes evangelicals or sometimes people, TV preachers will make it seem like uh, these prophecies are fulfilled today in modern Israel, you know, with the, with the founding of the modern nation or state of Israel. Um, but I think this fails to recognize some important points that Zechariah has been making throughout the book. So let me just name two. One is the current government of Israel is not a messianic structure. Like, in other words, the prime minister of Israel is not the Messiah. Uh, so, um, and, it, and it even precludes a messianic king, their structure does. Second, the rejection of Christ by modern Judaism makes fulfillment of this prophecy in the current context uh, I would say impossible, because even though Zechariah doesn't explicitly mention the Messiah here, throughout his book and his prophecies, he's been uh, referencing the Davidic branch, uh, which is fulfilled in Jesus, the incarnate son. So I would say before these things could at least be completely fulfilled, you would need a widespread turning to Christ uh, in Israel. And I think we will see that, by the way, at the end of the age. Um, well, in, in 8 9, then, you have encouragement to Zechariah's contemporaries, but there's also, uh, again, this sort of a view to a final fulfillment of God's covenant promises at the end of the age. So to his contemporaries, um, that's what I mean by contemporary and eschatological fulfillment, to his contemporaries, he says, God will give you peace from those who oppose the building efforts. And in fact, in verse 11, he says, now, like right now. Um, but then with regard to the future, we see 
uh, indicators that that there's a future fulfillment by his reference to the remnant, right, which refers to uh, there's a strong biblical theme of a remnant returning that gets picked up in the New Testament to refer to uh, the, the faithful. Um, and then uh, the reference to the seed, right? Peace for the seed. The land will produce vegetation. And then in 8.13, both Judah and Israel. He refers to both Judah and Israel, right? The north and the south, a restored, uh, restored nation, which is, of course, not, uh, not what they had then in the contemporary context. And then uh, he says they will become a blessing, Judah and Israel will become a blessing, uh, again, hearkening back to uh, Abrahamic covenant language. Uh, and then in 14 through 17, you have what I call a blueprint for a nation living under divine blessing. He says, in order to enjoy the blessings of the Lord, you must institute righteousness grounded in love and truth and peace. And of course, Love and truth and peace are found in Christ, right? So in 8, uh, 20 through 23, you have a description of what it looks like to be a blessing to the nations. He describes it as the other nations coming and begging the Jews to let them participate in the worship of the Lord in Jerusalem. And so I just say this, here again, the rebuilding of the temple in this post-exilic time, right, after they return from the exile, is uh, it's paralleling. It's another parallel to the entry into the promised land following the wilderness wanderings. So when the people return from Babylon, it's like coming out of Egypt and coming out of the wilderness into the promised land. And what you have is an offer of the covenant blessings to a particular generation. Like if you living here today will be obedient, you can, you can see the blessings of God poured out as promised to Abraham. That was offered to the Israelites before they entered the promised land. And of course, as we know, they began to see it and saw you know, the, the, the beginning fruits and then they fell away and split and ended up in exile. Now it's being offered again. And what we're going to see is they again started out well and then fell apart. And I want to point out also the um, continuity of the emphasis on um, cleansing. Um, so in, in the past chapters, it has talked about cleansing from, uh, from sin, from defilement, from um, false worship, um, from just falsehood and, and dishonesty um, among themselves and in their own hearts. And in this chapter, um, towards, the, uh, towards the middle of the chapter, I guess, um, verse uh, 15 and 16 and following, um, there's an emphasis on truth. And, you know, there's the work that God does in cleansing from defilement as well. And then there's the work that, that the people are expected to do. Speak truth to one another. Make true decisions within your gates. Don't plot evil against your neighbor. Don't love perjury. I hate these things, says the Lord. So there's like a cleansing that they have to do as well by pursuing truth and eschewing falsehood. Uh, then he moves to uh, judgment restoration. Uh, so here in uh, 9, 1 through 7, the beginning of 9, you have uh, his judgment. He have a, have a sort of an extended discussion of judgment on the nations. But what's interesting in verse 7, he describes it as a refining judgment. They can be cleansed and they can become he describes like the clan of Judah, like a remnant. And so you have, he, even here in Zechariah, you have uh, the notion that God will include Gentiles among his people, fully participating with the faithful Jews in the Abrahamic covenant blessings. Now, remember, Peter had to have a new vision just to understand this before going to Cornelius's house, right? The vision of the tent coming in or the, yeah, the, the tarp or the tent coming down with all the, all the unclean animals. You remember that? Uh, so the, even, even in Jesus's own day or, or after having been taught by Jesus, they didn't, the disciples didn't even fully understand this yet. It's right. It's, it's at least indicated here 
in Zechariah. And so it's in the context of him talking about uh, including the Gentiles that we, he has a messianic promise in verses 8 and 9. The Messiah endowed with, who's endowed with salvation. Uh, and so in the, in the immediate political context, Zechariah's prophecy will refer to physical security as the returning exiles are seeking to reestablish the society as a nation. But of course, it has a further spiritual meaning where uh, the uh, Messiah is described as speaking peace to the nations, having full dominion, uh, cutting off the bow of war, and then in verse 12, restoration and even freedom for, from prisoners. That's, a, of course, a salvific imagery there. Um, and then he goes on, though, to describe a future war between the forces, what I describe as the forces of the world order versus the faithful. Literally, he says, Zion versus the Greeks, the Greeks. Um, so you could take that as a, a literal war between Israel and Greece, but I don't know of any such war that really occurred. I mean, Greece invaded, took over, uh, but it wasn't much of a war. I guess you could say it, it might have referred to... Um, the Maccabean revolt, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't have all the hallmarks of that, um, of that revolt, uh, which happened, uh, just before in the intertestamental period. But in 914, so you see, this is why I say it's talking about a future war. It says the Lord will appear over them. Yahweh will appear over them. He'll blow a trumpet. He'll defend them. The Lord will save them in verse 16. And they'll be like the beauty, uh, as the stones in his crown. Um, <clears throat> So we see God offering peace and blessing through the Messiah, and he saves his people, and he will uh, execute judgment on godless society and humanity, and it seems to follow the Messiah. You want to do chapter 10? Um, I don't know, maybe. Okay. So in chapter 10, we see um, that God is, uh, he says, against the shepherds or against leaders who he, sa he says mislead his flock. Um, God says that he himself, the Lord of hosts, will lead the flock of Judah and make them successful militarily. He compares them to God's royal war horse, um, putting um, the enemy horsemen to shame. It seems that there are possible promises here for both um, Judah and Israel because it mentions the house of Joseph and um, and Ephraim, and uh, it seems to say that they'll all be gathered from where they had been scattered, from distant lands, from Egypt, from Assyria, and that God will save and bring them back because of his compassion, again, that word raham, because of his compassion for them, and he'll treat them as if they had never been rejected. I think that's amazing, amazing grace. And uh, and just think of this, it's, it's God is going to be the shepherd. Now think of the imagery of Jesus as the good shepherd. There's a, a, again, Christological claim just in calling himself the good shepherd. A lot of times we, people don't pick up on this, but in the Old Testament, God oftentimes says, I am going to shepherd my people. And Jesus himself says he's the good shepherd. Who else would be the good shepherd but Yahweh, right? God himself. So again, a, Christ, a, a claim to Jesus's deity uh, in that claim. Okay, well, in Zechariah 11, did you want to do this? No. Okay. <laughs> All right, so um, you start with a poetic introduction where God is warning of judgment on the land. He talks about uh, uh, shepherding a flock that is doomed to destruction. So what, what does that mean? The imagery is of sacrificial lambs, lambs that, uh, sheep that have been set apart for uh, God, set apart unto God, which of course, if you think about Israel, they are set apart unto him as a holy people, or are supposed to be, right? Just as we are, uh, a holy nation were described by Peter. Um, but of course they fail. So the, there's sign act here where Zechariah shepherding a flock, and then he, he breaks these two uh, shepherd's crooks or stabs. Um, and uh, uh, the first one, favor, symbolizes the breaking of God's covenant. 
by the people, right? And then the second one symbolizes the break between Israel and Judah, which in some ways was a rejection of the Davidic covenant, but it was also, it also occurred because the Davidic leader was not acting like the godly leader he was supposed to be. In either case, both of these, uh, the breaking of these staves indicate um, uh, God's I don't want to say inability, but God's refusal to continue to shepherd the flock that rejects him as its shepherd. And so he allows them to be shepherded by these bad shepherds. And ultimately, uh, he, uh, he judges them in 11.8. We're not sure who these are, by the way. You could probably uh, have a lot of fun trying to identify specifically which shepherds they are. We don't know. Um, but Zechariah eventually just gives up and says, just give me my money. Uh, ironically, it's 30 pieces of silver. We aren't sure if that has any correlation to Judas, the payment to Judas or not, um, because obviously Zechariah is not a Judas figure. So we're not sure what happens here, but he, he sort of says, uh, you know, hand them over. Maybe uh, Zechariah giving up indicates his own fate. Remember, I, I said he, by, we think he might've been martyred. Um, at any rate, a, a worthless shepherd is raised up and that shepherd, while it's allowed to shepherd God's people, that shepherd is also judged because of his own poor leadership and godlessness. And so this seems to be the story of Israel uh, retold. Um, so Zechariah 12 describes a day when the nations will come against Judah and Jerusalem, but God will defend them. Uh, God will fight for them, it appears. Uh, the nations will be subject to um, blindness, to fear, panic, confusion, ultimately destruction. Um, that, that Judah will be strong, though, and they will find their strength in God and will then consume, like, you know, it says like a fire. Um, they'll, they'll defeat the other nations because of God's help, the work that God does. And that uh, in that time, God will pour out, he says, a spirit of grace and prayer in the house of David and in, in Judah and Jerusalem. And these will mourn, uh, maybe in repentance, um, for uh, their transgressions against God. John is looking forward to explaining. <laughs> so, so he says they, they look upon, and, and here's what's interesting. The one they, they pierced, what it, the, the translation is a bit, it could go either way. It could either say <laughs> they look upon he whom they pierced or me who they pierced, which is interesting, uh, again, given the, the debates about whether there's ever a claim about Jesus's deity being God incarnate. Yet here you see it, maybe uh, me who they pierce. So they pierce God himself. And the interesting thing is they will mourn. They look on him and mourn. Um, well, in, in the New Testament, it's indicated that uh, they look on him as Jesus is dying on the cross. So in his first advent, it applies to his first advent. Uh, as he dies on the cross, the, the women of Jerusalem are mourning and wailing, right? Um, and yet also, there's also a sense in which at his second coming, they look upon him and there's a widespread turning uh, to Christ, um, specifically among Israelites. And so in uh, 12, 12 through 14, all the families will mourn. And this is one of those passages we have no idea we, we have no idea what it means because of the names are kind of odd. It says David, Nathan, Levi, and Shimei. Um, and we're, we're not exactly sure which, uh, Nathan, which Nathan and which Shimei, yeah. and we're not really 100% sure which Levi either. So we're, we're pretty sure we know which David it is. Uh, what's interesting <laughs> is it, it, there's, a, there's a, a descendant of Levi by the name of Shimei. You might recall there's like another guy named Shimei who was a, a Benjamite who who scorned David when he was running from Absalom and sort of saying, probably not that way. Well, I, I think it might be, okay. but anyway, I'm, I'm in the minority, like 
it's just me and me. Uh, so just me, myself, and I, just the three of us. But uh, anyway, I guess I don't have time to explain it except to say if it's, if it's David and one of his descendants and Levi and one of his descendants, the notion is, again, that imagery of political and religious leaders and their families and their descendants. So the whole structure of Israel as a called out people. I'll leave my interpretation to any email people who want to ask me <laughs> what I think it might be the other Shimei. All right, Zechariah 13, because we're running short on time. Trucking along. All right, we're told there's going to be a fountain opened in Jerusalem for the house of David for sin and impurity, uh, that God will remove the false prophets and the idols from the land. Um, he even says that parents will, the parents of these false prophets will be against them. Um, this imagery of family members against family members uh, at this time, even the false prophets will admit that they're false prophets, right? So there's this sort of coming to light of the truth. And, uh, and at this time, we have a messianic uh, imagery where there's the striking the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Um, and uh, this Messiah is described as being equal to God. Uh, we have, uh, well, the, the same language as in Isaiah 53 and in Mark uh, 14 and Matthew 26. Um, we're told also, though, that in this, in this time of judgment that uh, many people will, will perish. So uh, this has imagery of, uh, of, you know, severe judgment, end times type cataclysm, two-thirds perishing and one-third being refined and being his people. So um, it's, again, the idea of the remnant and of, of the cleansing of the remnant. Okay. Well, and then at the end here, we have, again, another what I would call an end times uh, picture, uh, Zechariah. So this is how he closes out his oracle, his prophecy. Uh, Right, God will gather the nations against Jerusalem uh, and the city. Houses are going to be plundered. Atrocities will be performed. Uh, half the people will be exiled. But then, then God will rise up and defend uh, his people, and he will judge, fight against those nations, judging them. Uh, he will stand on the Mount of Olives. Right, so this picture of God standing on it and splitting it. The the the. Uh, like the earthquake in the days of Uzziah. Um, in uh, 14.5 and following, it says, the Lord will come, there'll be darkness, no light will shine. Um, and, then, and then living waters will flow uh, out of Jerusalem and God will be king over all the earth and all the people will worship him. God will be all in all, we're told, and Jerusalem will be safe. Um, and then God will con judge and condemn those who fought against his people. Um, it says fought against Jerusalem, but um, will judge those who fight against uh, his plan for the earth. So, uh, again, they're just sort of splotches of what we see in the book of Revelation, but very much consistent with the book of Revelation, that uh, there's going to be a time of a great war. There's going to be a lot of... <laughs> death and the that death in those wars and cataclysm uh are a judgment of god upon the earth um but also it's not the end of humanity because god's uh plan in creating will come to fruition and god will be all in all and this is a reminder we'll see next week because we're not going to get to this week in malachi um this slide I put together in like five minutes, so there's probably more I could have put on here. I'm probably going to think more about this and add it to next week's. But what do we see in Zechariah as sort of a fast overview? We see, we see a number of things here. We see uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel, this priest and king, as picture of the Messiah, right? So the Messiah will be a, a priest and a king. And what's interesting is many uh, people at the time of Jesus, many Jews, were looking for 
there was a tradition, let's say a, 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 an emerging rabbinic tradition that there were going to be two messiahs, one who was going to be a, a, from the priestly line and one that was going to be a Davidic kingly messiah. Um, what I find interesting is even in Zechariah, as I said in, in chapter six, you have a melding of those two into one individual, which we saw in Jesus, of course, with two comings. Uh, God cleanses sin, as I think you want to talk about that? No. So God is the one who cleanses sin. God takes the robe off. He's the one who puts the new robe on. Salvation and cleansing is a work of God. It's not only a declaration of not guilty, but it's a cleansing and a making holy, what we call justification and sanctification. Um, the Messiah, this, we see this already in Zechariah, where the Messiah coming seems to open the door to all persons, Gentiles, being allowed to participate in the covenant uh, alongside the Jews. Even those nations, those Canaanite nations that have warred against Israel and been a thorn in their side, even those peoples can participate if they will turn to the Lord. Yeah, because that, that's how the book ends with Can there won't will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts because they'll be absorbed into the people of God. Absorbed into the people that grafted in, as Paul says in Romans. Which is kind of like a final cleansing of the land. They were never able to drive out all the Canaanites when they came in under Joshua. And this is almost like a final cleansing that the Lord, again, the Lord has to do it. Right. And the cleansing doesn't require the obliteration of those people yeah. because they can be saved. Because, again, God's plan was to call Abraham to be a blessing to, the, to all peoples because God desires that all men be saved, which is why we do missions. Right. Uh, others, indications that the Messiah is God himself. Um, right. We see that indicated in Zechariah in the Old Testament. It's not a made up doctrine, as some uh, critics of Christianity want to say. Um, the Messiah appears just before the judgment of God. So we see this in, in the New Testament as well. Um, the, the Messiah in Zechariah is identified with the branch and the servant of uh, in Isaiah's prophecy. So Isaiah talks about the branch and he talks about the, the branch of David or branch of Jesse uh, of the house of David and the suffering servant or the servant who uh, of the Lord. Uh, this is the Messiah in Zechariah as well. And what does the Messiah do? He brings peace and cleansing after a great war uh, or great conflict between the godless world order and the faithful. And I wrote Christian Israel because the language uh, of Zechariah and in and, and many of the Old Testament prophets is the language of a political entity of Israel. Now, whether or not it's a real political entity of Israel or whether it is spiritually fulfilled in the church is a matter of debate among theologians. I'm not going to solve that right now, but just to say it's some kind of the faithful uh, who the Old Testament prophets describe as uh, a restored Israel that, in, that can include Gentiles as well. This is what we see in Zechariah. Again, um, I think we've said this before, but we're seeing the gospel even in these, let's say, somewhat cryptic. That's how I described it on Facebook this week. And one of my Old Testament friends said, You're, that's saying it. <laughs> so I felt better. Uh, but even in, in these uh, minor prophets, we see the gospel. So the Bible is very much consistent from Genesis all the way to Revelation, as we like to say. Well, next week, next week we're going to do Malachi and a very fast overview. We'll be clicking through the slides pretty quickly just to remind us sort of what have we covered in these 15, well, 15 weeks next week. And uh, hopefully we'll see some patterns emerging as we sort of reflect back on all the things we've talked about. And I think to help you along in the book of Malachi, I mean, you know, just like read it through and try to, you know, read those four little chapters, which is almost kind of like three and a half um, each day. What will help you, I think, is if you go back and Homework. look in um, Ezra. <laughs> Um, and in Nehemiah and look at the people's situation, what was happening, the kinds of issues that were happening. Um, because I think that Malachi makes reference to a number of the situations that were happening uh, among the post-exilic 
um, returnees. All right, and we are at the end.